You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. He was so sick of death. There were people in the world that never had to face death except in old age, when death is almost comforting. But they never had to face the violence of a young death. They never had to bury their father with tissue paper stuffed and and sewn into his collapsed skull. They were mean, stupid people, he imagined, sitting in their homes in America or England, staring vacantly at their televisions, falling asleep in a bored stupor on their couches. He hated and wanted to be one of those vacant people. Yesterday at the ice skating rink, he had identified the bodies of Ahmet and his family. Their faces had been calm, their bodies bloodless, but he could see where their ribs had been broken, where their chests lay as flat as their stomachs. Overwhelmed, he had embraced Ahmet before they wrapped his brother-in-law's body in a bag, tied it together at his ankles and shoulders, and carried him away. Because officials were afraid of the spread of disease, all the dead, including Ahmet and his family, were tossed into a common grave. The mayor was there, standing at the edge of the open pit, alternately trying to comfort family members who were praying over the burlap bags and loudly criticizing the government. Alan Drew taught English literature at a private high school in Istanbul, Turkey. He arrived to start his job just four days before the Marmara earthquake of 1999. His first book is Gardens of Water. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Well, thank you very much for having me. Tell me a little bit about your just as your beginnings as a writer. Did you start writing as a child? Many writers I've talked to start writing as, you know, in three and five years old and reading. Was that you? No, it, it wasn't me at all. Um, in fact, my mom had to work very hard to get me to read anything. I grew up in Southern California, so I always wanted to be outside, always, always running around. You know, so I, I didn't really want to sit and read anything. My mom finally had to get me to read James Bond books to, to read anything. You know, it wasn't until high school that I really sort of started writing. Um, and, and knew that I was, I was pretty good at it, but I, I didn't do it religiously. I didn't do it a lot, and it really wasn't until I was in college after a lot of beer drinking, a lot of, I was a vocal performance major for a while, and I was an art major for a while until I really figured out that what I really wanted to do was to write, um, and it really coincided with a trip I took around the country with a friend. We traveled around, and I, I started to keep a journal. I was really bored with the just daily observation stuff, so I started writing really bad poetry that I enjoyed writing, and uh, when I came back, I became a creative writing major. Um, and finished my, my degree as a creative writing major. So you, you came out of college ready to write mm-hmm. um, and ended up teaching English, English literature. Well, I had a little diversion for a while. I, I left, I graduated, and then I ended up actually working on an Indian reservation in Montana for a while with um, emotionally disturbed kids. And, yeah, I really actually went up there to sort of write the great American Western novel. I was really into people like Thomas McGuane at the time. Um, and, and did not end up doing that at all. I really wanted to get into the MFA program at the at, uh, University of Montana, and that didn't happen either. Um, but I did you know, find that I really loved working with emotionally disturbed kids, and that sort of slowly pushed me to becoming a, a, a teacher. Um, I went back to the Bay Area and uh, worked with, again, with SED kids there in the Bay Area, in the East Bay. After a couple years of doing that, really thought, hey, I want to teach, and went back and got my credential at San Francisco State and, and started teaching English in the, in the Bay Area. Then you decided to move to China, was it? What mo- motivated you to move to China to, to teach English? Well, we tried to move to China, and that didn't work out. My wife and I met teaching high school. Uh, we were teaching at San Leandro High School. 
Um, and we decided that we were going to, uh, we decided to get married. So we got engaged and uh, we decided that we wanted to do something sort of big and crazy before we decided to have kids. So um, we went to Houston to a job fair armed with our two years of teaching experience and uh, thought we would try to get jobs in China. Um, and we couldn't find a school that had two English positions because we we're both English teachers. So we sort of stumbled around and um, gave people resumes and, and uh, talked to some other places and, and sort of realized that we probably weren't going to get a job this time. But then I walked by Uskudar American Lee Sessi's table and the director of the school was sitting there. And uh, he and I ended up talking and he uh, offered us an interview. And uh, we uh, all of a sudden we were interviewing that night and then the next morning he was offering us a job to go to Istanbul. And then we went off to Istanbul for, for the three years. You arrived in Istanbul four days before a, a major disaster and earthquake. Right. How settled were you when this when this happened? Did you know? Did you have a place to live? Or yeah, we we did have a place to live for the school. The, the, the school we taught at um, well, it was a very expensive private school in, in Istanbul. So they had you know very nice campus. Um, they had what was called a logement for for teachers there. So you know we got there four days before the earthquake hit. And we were uh, sort of settled into the logement. You know, we were, we, the night it hit was the first night we'd actually slept um, and gotten over, you know, gotten over the jet lag. And you know, we just sort of hung some pictures and, and had, a, had a few you know, things of food in the, in the uh, refrigerator. And, uh, and then the earthquake hit that, that night at 3 o'clock in the morning. Did you feel it where you were? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, in, you know, having grown up in Southern California and lived in the Bay Area, I've, I've experienced, been in many earthquakes, but I've never felt anything like this before. I think it was originally, said they, they said it was a 7.6 at first, and they downgraded it to a 7.4. You know, the experience was, you know, it, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, woke us up, we stood in the doorway, and uh, I remember standing there, and we kept, I kept telling my wife, she's from Ohio and hadn't been through many earthquakes, Kept telling her, you know, it's going to end, it's going to end, it's going to be over in a second. Just kept going. It was 45 seconds, and it just seemed like forever. And uh, the experience was like, and when you see those bad movies, and, you know, they're trying to portray an earthquake, and it looks like the cameraman's just bouncing the camera up and down, that's exactly what it was like. And with an occasional huge jolt where the whole building would feel like it was jumping off its foundation. Um, but when it was over, we, we called home immediately because we knew it was going to make the news, and which was, was very lucky because within a half an hour, you couldn't call it for three days. Um, but I walked around the apartment, and we had a duplex, and we just bought a bottle of wine and set it on a, on a, um, a glass shelf. They all had glass shelves. The wine didn't fall off. Um, none of the pictures we hung fell at all. So we thought, well, you know, maybe we're just out of our heads, tired, and it wasn't that big of a deal. And um, went to sleep, and then, but about an hour later, um, heard a bunch of voices out in the street, and looked out the window, and the whole street was filled with people. People had their car radios on, um, and they were listening to what was going on. And it started to become very clear that something very, very horrible had happened. But the earthquake was about 50, 60 kilometers away to the to the east um, in an area called Izmit. So the heart of Istanbul wasn't really affected very, very terribly. It was it was down towards Izmit, where you know there were apartment buildings built on landfill. Um, that really, you know, whole towns were destroyed. Once you realized the scope of the destruction, did you have to continue to work? And if not, where did you go and what did you do? Well, school was canceled for about three weeks. And so we were supposed to start about a week after we got there, and, and we didn't. 
it was a very strange time. And, we, you know, obviously we'd just gotten there. We didn't know the city very well. Um, we didn't know anybody outside of the people that had come with us to the school. Um, most of the teachers had not come to school yet because it was canceled. We did end up uh, having a connection through a colleague with a, a church group that was running a tent city down in the, the, the area that was affected. So we went down and, and worked in a, in, a, in a tent city down there. And um, this is really sort of the genesis of the book, I think, that we were working in this tent city, and it was an amazingly well-run city, tent city. Um, we got down there, and there was probably 300, 400 tents. I mean, this is just one of, of many such tent cities in the area at the time. And it was run by a Southern Baptist group from Texas. They had little light blue T-shirts with, with doves emblazoned on the chest and the name of their church on the back and the dates they were doing the work. And we had just gotten done cooking, feeding everybody for lunch, and we had finished the dishes. And so we were sitting around getting ready to go out and play soccer again with, with the boys in the, in the camp. And this, this man came up to us, young man in his 20s, and got down on his haunches and, and said to us, like, you're all Christians, right? And so we all just kind of looked at each other. And uh, one of my very good friends, Robert Rosenberg, who's Jewish, looked at me like, what's, what's going on here? This isn't going to be good. And he didn't let us answer. He just immediately jumped into, well, go out and spread the good news. And he ran off, and it was very clear that, that, that they were, the camp, people in the camp were proselytizing to, to everybody in the, in the camp. And, uh, and much later on, it became a major problem, and they ended up getting kicked out of Turkey for, for doing such a thing. It caused a major problem in the camp. That was just such a shocking moment. It was, it was very disturbing to me that these people had lost everything while the, the, the Southern Baptist group was doing a great job of feeding everybody, but at the same time were feeding them and saying, you know, your religion isn't good enough, you know, come over and be, become, become Christians, you know. When you were there, were you, did you think about writing about this? I mean, as you were experiencing this, were you taking notes or, or recording yourself or recording the scenes? Or how were, how was you preserving this? I wish I had done that. It would have made things a lot easier, probably. It's interesting. When I was there, I, I wrote an article about the earthquake that got published in, in a couple small newspapers. That was really the only writing that I did about Istanbul when I was there. I mean, I, I would sit down and write notes about things sometimes that I, that I saw in the three years we were there. But when I was there, I was writing about California. So I was writing all these stories about my childhood in California, strangely enough. And it wasn't until I got back here, well, to Iowa at the workshop, that about the, after the first year in the workshop, that I started writing about the experiences in Turkey. And partly f- from a pragmatic standpoint is that it became clear at the workshop that if you wanted to become a published writer and make some kind of career, that you really needed to write a novel. But also there were so many things that happened when we were there in those three years that just kept sticking with me. And I kept thinking about them. I kept chewing on them. And you know, and then I came, I started, started writing, tentatively writing first scenes in the book, and I, I, I sort of fell in love with this character, Sinan Bashiolu, that I uh, was writing about, and, uh, you know, writing the story from his point of view really sort of spurred me on to keep going with it, and, and suddenly I found there were all these things I wanted to talk about, all these things that were, were interesting to me from those three years that I had not, I mean, I'd sort of let them sort of just stew in my head, I guess. And once I started writing about it, it just sort of really started to take off and, and, and sort of have a life of its own. So, Why did you decide to write uh, uh, fiction, fictionalize it, as opposed to write nonfiction? It's a, I mean, as you describe it to me here, it's a powerful and scary experience, in fact. Well, I've never thought really about writing nonfiction, for one thing. I mean, I think I'm a, I'm a fiction writer. I'm sort of a born liar, I guess. Uh, um, you know, it, I think that uh, this story, I don't, while there are many things that feed into the story, very many experiences in Istanbul, I don't 
as a nonfiction writer, I don't see how I could talk about all those things in a story that would make sense, in which they would all come together in a way that, that would work. Um, it just seemed natural to put it into a, fi- you know, into a, a fictional situation. And it gives you a lot more freedom, I think. When you're writing a story, you know, the story has a lot of things to say, but I'm writing a story. I want the readers to be immersed in the story. I want it to have a narrative arc. Um, I love stories. And so, you know, the, the sort of things that I wanted to touch on, um, I don't know that I could write them in nonfiction. I think that uh, I just don't think I would do it very well. <laughs> when you started, right, you were in uh, Iowa uh, workshop. Right. MFA program. This is a big famous, well, highly regarded program. Uh, was this the first thing you wrote about for them? And did you start with the intention of writing a novel, or did you just start writing sketches, or did you start an outline? And I... My first year, again, I was, I was sort of finishing up and, and workshopping a lot of the stories, the California stories I had begun um, in Istanbul. The first year I was there, I was sure somebody had made a mistake that I that I wasn't supposed to be there. Somebody had read somebody else's story and thought my put my name on it somehow, and and uh, it was a great big mistake. And so I spent the first year very very self conscious and very uncomfortable there, and very afraid somebody's going to find out that I wasn't talented at all and I didn't belong at this famous program. And um, so I really kind of stuck with things that I I felt pretty comfortable with, which was not a very good thing to do, you know, when you're at a place where you're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to be really stretching yourself and learning and um, you know, and it wasn't until about this, you know, until the second year, I, I got a teaching writing fellowship by some miracle, and, uh, and which was sort of a competition within the program for, for this, for the, 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 what's called TWIF. Um, and that gave me a little confidence. And then I just decided, you know, I need, if I'm going to be serious about trying to make a career out of this, and I need to write something different, and, and I need to move beyond myself and, and get sort of out of the sort of autobiographical territory of California. And that's when I sort of made that decision. But I, you know, I don't. I stumbled through the writing of the novel. I didn't know how to do it. And in these workshops, it's really difficult to workshop novels. You know, just, just by the nature of a two-year program, you know, say the novel takes you three, four years to write. How are you going to go through the process of workshopping a novel? Nobody can read the whole thing. Nobody can see the arc of the story to give you any sort of comments on it. So you're sort of kind of left on your own. Um, I, I did workshop a little bit in Marilyn Robinson's workshop for the last year, but still it was very difficult for people to make comments. So, you know, for me, the writing of a novel was really a stumbling, you know, I stumbled through the process, figured it out as I was going, and developed ways that I, w- I was able to move forward. But, I, you know, I, I know people, you know, write, you know, will plot out their whole story, but I didn't really know where the story was going when I started it. You know, I started with a situation, I started with a character, and I really tried to have everything grow out of the character's experience. Um, so, so hopefully, you know, hopefully when you read the book, it feels the experiences, the plot feels organic to character rather than the other way around. Um, the problem with doing that is obviously sometimes you don't know where you're going with it, you know, and, and you can get lost very easily. But I, you know, I started getting little tricks where I'd be writing a scene and I'd know where the scene was going to go and I'd purposely stop writing it. And then I would come back maybe if I could that night and work for the scene, and then by the time I was done with that scene, I kind of knew where the next scene was going, and I'd write sort of halfway into that scene, even though I knew where it was going, and I would stop. So I'd chew on it all night, get up the next morning, and write again. And so, you know, I lost a lot of sleep doing that, but what it did was sort of allow me to keep a sort of cyclical momentum in the writing so that I never had to sit down and, well, not ever, but most of the time I didn't have to sit down and start from a cold, dead stop and try to figure out where I was going next. Um, And that you know, that worked for whatever reason. And I might write little notes at the bottom of my, of the scene 
and erase them after I'm reading, writing the scene. But you know, I think everybody's got their own little tricks that just seem to work for me. Your main point of view character, Sinan, I could not be, I think, more different from you. <laughs> he, he, he's. It's a completely different culture, right. and, and he has a completely uh, alien to my Western view perception. I mean, you might as well be writing about the Klingons, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, so, what chose you to lead this? Take this point of view rather than the point of view you have an American character in there, a, a man that uh, could be almost a stand-in for you in, in some ways. What chose you to take the alien perception, character's perception, and how did you work that out? Well, it's interesting. Um, Sinan Bashiolu's point of view for me was easier to write than to write from, the, from uh, Marcus Roberts, the American's point of view. In fact, I tried to write from his point of view, and, and in early drafts I had, I started to put his point of view into the story, and it just didn't work. It felt awkward. I felt like I couldn't see him very well. Um, for whatever reason, Sinan felt more, felt more natural to me. Um, and I really debated about whether or not I could write from that point of view. I almost didn't write the story because, you know, what do I, you know, I'm a white guy from Southern California. Why do I feel like I can write from a Kurdish man's point of view and a devout Muslim at that? Um, but I was just intrigued by this character. And, I, you know, I knew some people. We met some Kurdish people. And I have some p- people that I know in my mind. I can picture when I'm writing from this point of view. Um, but Marilyn Robinson at the workshop really helped me at the, at the end of the year. And when she, the last semester I was there when I was working in this and, and in that sort of very uh, vulnerable state where I was thinking about not writing the book. And she said, you know, she made a point of saying that sometimes we can see other people more clearly than we can see ourselves. Um, and she didn't say anything more than that. She didn't even elaborate. I wish she would have elaborated a little bit more, but just saying that helped me. Um, and, you know, I don't have an easy answer for why I was able to do this. And I don't know if a Kurdish man reads the story, if he's going to see all the ways I got it wrong or not. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I chose his point of view. Um, it's sort of many of the people that were killed or lost their families in the earthquake were um, displaced from Anatolia. Many of those people were Kurds because of the South, the, the, the civil war going on in the South between Kurdish separatists and Turkish military. Um, so it, it was pretty natural to the situation that somebody like Sinan would be in his situation. Um, and also that seemed to, he's, you know, he, Sinan himself in that culture in, in, in Turkey is sort of an outsider. He's an outsider to the Americans, he's an outsider to the Turks. Um, and I wanted to bring in some of the politics in that situation um, for, for many reasons. Um, and so in that respect, he just seemed the, like the right choice, you know, to access his mind. I don't know. I, I read everything I could get my hands on about the Kurdish situation. I read the Quran. I read everything I could get my hands on when I was there about Turkey. And, and, and since, I mean, the last eight, nine years, I've been essentially obsessed by Turkey, reading everything I can. I draw my wife crazy. And then also, you know, the issue, and you know, I think there's something about in the story, the story is, for me, Sinan is really about being a man and, and, the, and the way in which the pressure Sinan feels about being a man and, and having all his power stripped away from him where he can't take care of his family anymore. He can't feed his family. He can't clothe his family. He can't house his family. And, and what that does to a man such as Sinan who has a very defined role of what it means to be a man 
and the pressures that he feels from his wife, who is also very conservative, um, was a very intriguing idea to me. And partly it's an intriguing idea to me. And I think the reason why he seems natural is because a lot of me is in in his character. And a lot of me is in that character because I was becoming a father at the time I was writing it. And I was scared to death about becoming a father. I was scared to death about whether or not I could raise a child. My wife and I were going into debt, getting our master's degrees, and we were bringing a child in the world. We had one 10-year-old car and didn't have a house and living in a terrible apartment in Iowa. And uh, I was scared to death. So a lot of my, a lot of the fears that Sinon has in, in the context of the story is really me coming out and my own fears about being a father. One thing that, that I thought was, was really interesting about this book is just the, the country of Turkey itself. As I read this book, uh, I, in the portrait of Turkey, I thought, this is kind of our future. But it's also, it, it, it seems that the world, because it's, it's a, a secular state, a mm-hmm. state with a lot of, uh, but yet a state with lots of religious um, where religion holds a huge power, right? Um, we have you have lots of Christians, Muslims, you have a, a lot of secular uh, lay people, um, all mixed together, and right. it's kind of barely working. It's sort of a democracy, yeah. <laughs> arguably, right, or maybe right. maybe not. And what interested me was that even though this seems, in a way, like the future we're headed towards, it's also, in a way a past. And at the very end of the book, you have this great description where you see the ancient cart pulling past the train. And I think, oh my God, our future is the past. (laughs) It's Turkey. Oh no. Uh, Yeah. I'm not sure how to answer that question, to address that. Um, And I think what you're getting at is one of the things that's so fascinating about Turkey as as a country, you know, and it's... um, it is such a strange, amazing combination of, of the past and the future and secular and religious. And, uh, you know, it's the, the, the old cliche about Istanbul in particular, but, but Turkey as well, that it's both east and west. It's, it's both secular and religious. It's, it sort of bridges the gap between the Middle East and, and, the, and Western Europe. And because of those things, it's, it's an amazing, fascinating place. And, and it's, it's one of these places that's so difficult to unravel what what, what the country's about, you know, and they're going through a major change right now. There's a, you know, you have this, what people like to say, an Islamist-leaning government. You know, we have a, you have a, pr- a prime minister and a president, and their wives are covered, which is really upsets the secular establ- establishment in Turkey, you know, and, and it is a democracy, kind of, but, you know, in Turkey, it's interesting. Turkey is, secularism, I think, is more important in Turkey than democracy. And there's this sort of grand experiment going on right now, you know, and, you, and it kind of makes sense. If you talk to a Turk, I think most Turks would say, you know, it's secularism and nationalism. That's the most important thing for us. You know, I mean, think about what they are. You've got the, you know, if you think about uh, nationalism, this national identity that doesn't matter if you're ethnic background, you are a Turk. doesn't matter if you're Armenian, doesn't matter if you're, uh, if you're Turkish ethnically, doesn't matter if you're a Kurd, it doesn't matter if you're a Greek, you know, you are a Turk. Well, it kind of makes sense why that's so important to them if you look at, say, the Balkans, you know, where that's just as, you know, Kosovo now separating and you see where Yugoslavia just fell apart and all the problems that, that sort of that happened there. You know, they look there and say, we don't want to be that, you know. And then they look to the Middle East and, and secularism. You know, we want a secular government. We don't want to have this, these issues of, of Sharia law coming into play in our country. And you can kind of see why that's so important to them. And, uh, 
you know, but then now you have this Islamist leading government. They just repealed the law that used to be that you couldn't wear a headscarf in a university. So these uh, so Turkish women who covered themselves to go to university, public university, they uh, oftentimes they wear. I've seen women wear um, wear a wig and then a scarf over their wig. So when they walk through their neighborhood and go to school, they're not offending anybody in their neighborhood and they're still covered. But when they get to the, the school, they take off their headscarfs to go into school so that the state isn't offended by that as if they're covering themselves, but they're still covered because they got the, they've got the uh, um, wig on. And it's just Turkey's full of those things. And it, there's, a, there's a whole lot of tension in the country uh, around these issues. And I don't know if, if it's our future or our past or, or what it is, but you know, I think you see similar things in our country with uh, you know the rise of in the last say, ten years in particular the this uh, very Christian fundamentalism in this country as well. And I think you know it's it takes on a different form here because I think there's I think Christian people of the Christian right have more political power often than the people of the very fundamentalist uh, uh, Muslim extreme in, in Turkey. So it, it takes on a different, there's a different face to it, but you can see sort of the same things happening here as well. And it seems to be this sort of conservative upswelling of traditional culture throughout the world. And um, Turkey just happens to, happens to be sort of the epicenter of that, I think, in some way. One of the things about Turkey that's interesting is that it seems to be more of a culture of shame than a cult culture of guilt. And we find that uh, shame informs a, a lot uh, of Sinan's decisions and his, his visions of himself mm. as he finds himself increasingly powerless. Mm. Could you talk about the part that this kind of perception plays and, and how, you, how did you yourself plunge yourself into this very alien perception? Did you talk to people? You talked about some of your research. As you wrote this up, did you play with it? and revise it? Or, or how did you create this very powerful perspective? I, mean, I guess when I'm thinking about it, I think about sort of this, this, this idea of honor and that uh, there's this interesting thing in conservative Islam that women are sort of the protector of the family's honor. And so it's, just, it's this very strange thing where it's, you know, women are revered because they're, in a sense, stronger than men. Men are the weak, weak ones. Men can't control themselves. They can't control their, their, their sexual desires. They can't do anything. So that's why women have to cover themselves. And if you're very, very strict Muslim society, say like the Wahhabists in, in Saudi Arabia, it might even be the, the point that a woman cannot speak next to a man because it might stir up the man's sexual desire. And so women are supposed to be the protector of that. Then, but if a woman does anything that, that sort of dishonors the family name, then, of course... We have this idea, the honor killing where she ends up being killed by perhaps her father or her brother or whatever because she's dishonoring the whole name. She's, she's casting shame across the whole family name. I mean, one of the other things that happened, and one of the reasons why I started writing about, about this as well, is that the last year I was there in Istanbul, there were a series of honor killings. And it was a very shocking thing for people in Istanbul. Istanbul is very Western, very cosmopolitan, um, very secular. And, you know, it, what, was the, what was happening was that these people from Anatolia, very traditional conservative folks from Anatolia, were coming into the city. And, I mean, these are these, it's really happening all over Turkey now where um, it used to be an agrarian culture and everybody's moving to the cities to make a living. And this woman, um, they did an interview with a woman whose daughter was killed by her husband and her son. And it was this very sensational interview. And she was holding a, a picture of her daughter, a portrait of her daughter, and she was crying as if she was mourning her daughter. I mean, I mean, she, she seemed devastated by the loss of her daughter, like you would expect a mother to, to mourn the loss of a child. 
yet at the same time she was saying, you know, my husband and my, my son did the right thing to kill her because she was dishonoring and shaming the whole family name. I mean, going back generations, you know, I mean, it ruins the family name. And it was so shocking to me, as it was to many people in Istanbul, this, what kind of, what kind of philosophical construct was being used there to try to, to, to justify what she was saying. And, and so part of writing the story was trying to figure out how, if you loved your child, how can you justify that? Because it seemed like she did. I mean, and I think the only thing I can think of that, that she was, you know, the daughter was lost before she was dead. You know, for her, for this woman, her daughter was already dead when she shamed the family name. Um, and I'm not sure how that plays into a society of guilt and a society of, of shame, but the, the lines for somebody like that are very rigid and that it seems to go back to an idea that, that the, the whole is much more important than the individual you know, and we, I think our culture is very much about individualism. We're supposed to go out and carve our own world out and, and do what we want and follow our own dreams. But um, I think in some of these other cultures, it's very much more about how you fit into the whole family, how you fit into the whole context of the society. And you cannot, def- you, you know, with that kind of thinking, you can't uh, uh, defy certain rules. If you do, it sort of undermines the whole thing. I don't really understand it, um, but that's why I wrote the book, <laughs> to try to, you know. One of the, the things that you write about in this book that I think is, is really interesting and clearly from your experiences is the reactions to the disaster. Mm-hmm. I, and I think it, uh, what I found really fascinating was that the children not only came out of it better but saw themselves as coming out of it better than the adults. Talking about a REM, right? Yes. Where she... Yeah, well... Uh, and yeah. even his smile. He's... He's just come out of being buried alive for three days, and he's telling his parents not to worry all the time. Right. Yeah. You know, for a rem, suddenly she has a freedom she hasn't had before. You know, her she no longer has to be sort of stuck in the house, and, you know, she can't spend her all day in the tent, so her parents have to let her out. She feels guilty about it, and she feels guilty that she has, that she feels good and she feels better than she did before the earthquake. But she does have this freedom. All of a sudden, she can go see this boy and get away with it because her father is preoccupied with so many other things. And so, you know, for her, it gives her this sort of freedom. For Ismail, oh, I don't know about Ismail. He, uh, you know, he's suffered this horrific thing. He's, he's had to grow, grow up in a way that most nine-year-olds would not have to grow up. I mean, he's, he's all of a sudden witnessed death. He's had a woman that's, you know, protected him, and, and she's died in doing so. And you know, he suddenly grows up in a way that I think uh, maybe, I don't know, in a way a ch- child should not. And I think there's something with both of them where they both sort of see the, especially Rem, she talks about seeing the, uh, the, the, the uh, limits of her parents, how far her parents can go and their, their own strength, and that she sees herself as being stronger than them suddenly, which is kind of quite a huge awakening for a 15-year-old girl, I think, to, to, to have, especially a conservative 15-year-old girl who, you know, who maybe isn't as sophisticated as your average, say, uh, San Francisco 15-year-old teenager who is already thinking her parents are lame. So, As you wrote this, you, you knew you were going to write about a disaster. And, and I'm wondering what you did to set yourself up in terms of the prose of describing the disaster, because it's, it's beautifully described, mm-hmm. as beautiful as horrific disruption can be. Right. Uh, how did you go about this? You've experienced other earthquakes as well. So did that feed into it or? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm certain my experience around earthquakes did, did feed into it, and my experience being there for this earthquake fed into it, and going down to the tent city and seeing the, kind of, seeing the area and seeing the kind of destruction that occurred from it. Um, I mean, you, you, when we went down there, you could, I remember driving down the Tem Freeway down to Adapazar and, and seeing, you know, 15-story apartment buildings that had essentially pancaked, um, some that were leaning over, and there were still beds and couches sort of hanging precariously out the windows or the, 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 the side of the building, just ready to fall, and whole apartment buildings sort of accordioned into the street. So the combination, I think, of going through the earthquake and knowing what that felt like and trying to create prose that felt like that kind of movement, that sort of violent, quick, and it's almost a fluid movement, strangely, and then seeing the kind of destruction that, that it that it reeked, you know, to, to actually see that and try to put those things together. And, and then, you know, then it's sort of your imagination. How can you vividly convey this on the page so that the reader experiences it well? I'm not really sure how you do it. I mean, it's, it, you know, for me, I think I write from, I write, you know, I used to, I, I used to be a musician. I used to sing. I, I played guitar. And I, I mean, my first love, I think, is really music. So I really, I can, he, I hear what it sounds like in my head. So sometimes I think, you know, writing that earthquake scene in particular, I was trying to imagine what that experience sounded like, you know, and put that into the prose in some way. So you get that sense when you're, you know, that it really contributes to the feeling of what, what that whole thing is like, the whole world shaking and, and sort of falling all around you. As a reading experience, this is a, a very peculiar book uh, because from the get-go, from page one, you immerse us, you put the reader in a culture clash, hmm. or at least uh, the Western reader. Right. Uh, here I am, I live in California on the West Coast, um, and, and all of a sudden I'm plunged into the perceptions of a fairly stern uh, fundamentalist, uh, a Muslim who, who is taking his nine-year-old son to, ha- to be circumcised. <laughs> and, and this is not an easy thing to wrap your brain around, nor is it pleasant. Yeah, and I don't know why you would start a book with a circumcision <laughs> ceremony, but that's what I, <laughs> I decided to do. Um, is, uh, what, could you talk about uh, creating, a, using the, the clash of cultures that the reader, not that the characters experience, but the reader experiences as a means of propelling the book? Hmm. Well, there's something really important about Sinon to me as a character, and I think I was conscious of it as a reader because I, I had a pretty good sense of what he was going to think about doing later on in the story, and I don't, uh, I don't agree with what he's thinking. I, you know, I'm repelled by what he thinks about doing to his daughter. Yet, there's something important about the man in terms of his experience. You know, you know, his beliefs are shaped by his experience, and I think for Sinon he. You know, he's, he's a victim of a political situation. He's lost his father to the Civil War. He's, you know, he's a victim of a natural disaster. He, he's lost everything. I think he, he can't practice, he can't speak his own language. Um, he can't learn his own language when he was a kid. Um, his whole culture is repressed. So, you know, the repression that he feels, I think, is a lot of what feeds what he does. But, for the, you know, I, I've, so many books have been out there about you know, books that take place in Muslim countries from the point of view of Muslim characters. And so and most of them present the world in, in sort of this sort of stark way in that all Muslim women, covered women, are victims. And all Muslim men are the perpetrators of the violence against the victims. And I feel like that's a, 
that's part of the way we want to see Muslims for some reason. We want to see from a Western point that we know better than they do in some way and that we need to fix them. Women shouldn't be covering themselves. That's not something that's right from, from our you know, liberal democratic standpoint. I think that perspective is very, is, does not serve, neither serves women, covered women, especially in Turkey, who right now use their political, um, their, their political rights to advocate for covering themselves to go to a university, nor does it give a fair presentation of, of um, that, you know, that sort of man's point of view. So I really wanted the characters to care about this man. I wanted to see his situation. I wanted us American readers to understand why he might dislike Americans and might have the justifiable reasons for disliking Americans. I want him, I wanted a reader to understand why he thinks what he does, but I also wanted him to be repelled by it, you know? So I wanted the reader to be uncomfortable in that way. I think it's important to be uncomfortable in that way because now you can understand Sinan, he's a, and I think he's a good character because of this. You can understand what he's thinking. You can understand why he thinks it. You can understand his you know, the justifications he goes through, the, the, but you still are so uncomfortable and so repelled by what he thinks about doing at the end. But now you see, okay, there's these things that feed into this. There's a reason why he thinks about doing this. And it seems to me that's sort of the beginning of at least, if you don't have some kind of, you know, the, the, the right act of writing this book was, was an act of trying to be empathetic towards that character and towards the situation of these people. And my hope is that the readers would be at least sympathetic to their situation. And we are all, you know, all of us are fallible. All of us do terrible things. Um, and oftentimes we do terrible things and feel terrible about it later on, as does Sinon. You know, Sinon's a tragic character. It's not till later on that he realizes that he doesn't love his daughter as much as he loves his son. He never even thought about that. You know, it's not until he's in this situation he thinks about that. He creates a situation where his daughter does the worst possible thing in, in Islam that she could do, and he's the one that causes it, and he feels horrific for it, and that's why he's tragic. And I think people, no matter what culture you're in, I think people you know, are attracted to that because we know that we have our own blind spots and can do terrible things as well. The other thing that we see in this book and that you talked about is uh, proselytizing with fiction. Or, or, or you're, in a sense, proselytizing with fiction. In As you write about proselytizing, the right. people are proselytizing with uh, with religion in, in the disaster. Could right. you talk, did you experience any tension at doing that yourself? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the contradiction. And could you talk about uh, a little more about some of your experiences and how you decided to translate those? Well, the first draft of the story was really driven by ideas. Um, and when I showed it to my agent, that's one of the first things she seized upon. It's like this is too much about what you think. It's too much about your sort of political standpoint. It's too much, it's, it's too much proselytizing in a sense. It's too driven by ideas. Um, and so I really had to step back from, from that. And uh, I mean, I, I and cut tons of stuff and really go back into character point of view and filter all of that stuff through the character's point of view. Um, and interestingly enough, as I did that, a lot of the story in terms of the, the political nature of the story and the, sort of the ideas in the story in that respect changed because um, I was trying to see them through, say, Sinon's point of view or Arem's point of view. But it was difficult 
because I do have some very particular feelings about some of the issues that are in here. But as much as possible, I really try to get back through character. And in theory, in theory, maybe this is the uh, the trick of the fiction writer is that he can stand behind his characters and say it's not really me, it's it's it's, it's my characters. But in theory, I don't really believe what Sinon believes. You know, it's what Sinon, it's Sinon's character. You know, obviously that's a that's a fine line to draw since I'm the one that created the character. But in theory, it's it's really what Sinon sees. You know, and I try to imagine if Sinon, if I was Sinon and I'd been through these things, I'd lost my father in a, you know, a raid, a Turkish military raid, and he was killed by M16 bullets that, that he knows are supplied by the American government. How am I going to feel about Americans? You know, and that's not a situation I've created. That is a situation that exists in the world. So I tried to filter through the characters, you know, that's, I guess we're going back to the fiction, nonfiction question you asked. I think that's maybe the nice thing about fiction writers is you can say, hey, it's my character, it's not me. <laughs> it's interesting to me, too. I think as I read this book and my grasp of Turkish politics is light <laughs> and, and, and it gets better as, as you read this book. But I, it, it struck me that you're getting at a lot at U.S. politics mm-hmm. via Turkish politics. Right. Well, it's interesting, and, and you know, and, and it depends. It depends on who's reading the book, in terms of the political standpoint. You know, yeah, there's a lot about American foreign policy in terms of the Kurds and that is in this book. And I think, you know, I mean, thinking about the Iraq War and you know what that's doing in Turkey now as well. You know, it's definitely in the back of my mind when I'm running the story. But it's interesting that it depends on who reads the story to see who suffers the most in this book. You know. It, it, what's very interesting is that I think, you know, Americans reading this story often see that the book is being critical of American foreign policy. And depending upon which, you know, which sort of political, you know, if you're the right or the left on the political spectrum, you either agree with that and feel like, yeah, that's that's a sign of our times. We need to change that. Or you are sort of repelled by that. And that's fine. But then, you know, I, this book sold in Turkey to a Turkish publisher um, about a year ago now. This is before the Armenian genocide issue came up in Congress. Um, this is before the PKK started doing cross-border um, raids and, and killed a bunch of Turkish conscripts. And it, it sold. My editor, my agent did not try to sell it. They came and searched out a representative of, the, of my agency at a, a I think, Vienna book, book uh, fair. So they asked for it. In November, I went back there you know, I was supposed to have dinner with the publisher. The first night I arrived, my wife calls and asked me if I'd spoken to Dorian, my agent. I said, no, I haven't. This is 1030 at night. She says, well, you, should, you need to talk to her, but, but let me tell you what's going on before you talk to her. And this, this particular publisher is owned by a major bank in Turkey, the banks founded by Ataturk. Apparently, the board, members of the, members of the publishing company and the bank got together that day when I was flying in there after I've signed the contract and been paid the money and said, we can't publish this book. So they're not going to, pu- they said, we're not going to publish this because they thought it could be read as being anti-Turkish because it's from a Kurdish point of view. Um, a Kurdish man is critical of the Turkish government. So this, the, the political stuff is very interesting because, you know, it depends for whatever reason, they're so scared. They were very scared that it, with Turkish nationalism on the rise, that readers are only going to notice how it's critical of the Turkish government. But, which is interesting because it is critical of American foreign policy, the book, through, through, the, through Sinan's character, um, which would be very in vogue in Turkey right now. 
you know, with the Iraq war and, and Turks are very upset with Americans and the American government because they feel that even though the American government says the PKK is a terrorist organization, they feel that America has not done enough to help them you know, root out the PKK in northern Iraq. So that's why the Kurds, I mean, the Turks are going into northern Iraq now um, with some help from America. But, they, but the average Turk feels really betrayed by America right now. And so you would think if they, you know, people seize on these one aspects of the story. You know, I think a lot of things get criticized in this book, um, but they seize on one aspect and they don't notice the other aspect of it. Um, and I think that's something that seems really be happening in Turkey. You know, it's very critical of American government policies overseas, and the average Turk would be all over that right now. But all they can notice, it seems, or they're afraid, only people will notice that it is critical through a Kurdish man, his point of view, critical of the Turkish government. Have you got any reactions from, from Kurdish people or Turks who have read this at all? What, what have they said? I'm really curious. I, you know, I haven't got any reaction from any Kurdish people. I don't know that I ever will. What's interesting is, so, you know, the, the, the publishing house pulls out of publishing the book. But today, you know, two days, yesterday, before I got on the plane to come here for this leg of the tour, I got a, an email from a, an editor at Radikal, which is one of, is a Turkish, is, a Turkish newspaper based in Istanbul, and they want to do an interview. So they sent me 12 email questions about the book. They've obviously read the book, really wanted me to, to address these questions to, to put in the paper on Saturday. So you, have the, you have the publishing house saying, no, we can't do this. But then you have the newspaper reading it in the, the English version. Well, now we want you to talk about it. We want to advertise this book. So it's very, I, you know, I don't really know what that means or, and how that's playing out. So I don't, the, the, the reaction has been very, I don't know ambivalent, ambiguous, whatever. It's very confusing. What sort of questions did they ask you? Did you get a sense of what they thought of you or the book or from from the questions? A lot of the questions are very similar to what everybody else asks me, you know, about, you know, it's very interesting. You write a fiction book and everybody wants to know about your experience living overseas. And and so you end up talking about you more than you do the book. Um, And they want to know the same things. How did we come to Turkey? You know, how did we find Turkey? You know, how did you write Sinan Bashiolo's point of view? And they asked a few questions about the PKK thing, but they weren't extremely probing questions. And I got a sense that we want to ask you about this because it's in the story, but we don't want you to say too much in the question in the answers to the questions. So, you know, this 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 uh, newspaper is, is is sort of a liberal spec liberal end of the spectrum, and they have a sort of reputation of pushing the envelope a little bit, but it's very clear that it can't be pushed too far. It feels like you're doing this sort of strange political dance. When you are trying to create these two Westerners, alien political realities, could you talk about the challenges of using an Islamic protagonist to convey these the, the complicated situation in Turkey to a Western reader? Did you, as you uh, created uh, Sinan, did you have to think about, okay, here he has to think about this because Americans won't understand this aspect of why he's behaving this way or why he feels this way? I don't know. I I think early on I thought about audience more than I did later on when I was trying to figure out who the character was. Once I had a pretty good, solid sense of who this character was, you know, again, I really tried to just 
have him act how I, naturally, the way I thought he would act in a situation. And because of this, the way I created him in my mind, I think that a lot of he, he says a lot of things that, uh, uh, I'm not really sure how to answer this question. Because of the way I constructed him and his situation, a lot of the things he ends up naturally speaking about in the situation with this American man, because of his anger and his frustration, um, sort of ends up sort of in the narrative explaining, you know, his point of view to an American. And again, it goes back to the, I, I wanted an American to, American readers to sort of get a sense of, of this, this political situation, but also really have a sense of, you know, a sympathy or empathy or an understanding why he would feel the way he does. And he's bitter and he's angry and he's got an American man there where you can tell him straight to his face that he's bitter and is angry. Um, and so I, I think that situation sort of, cr you know, created a way in which it could come out sort of naturally in the story. At least I hope it sounds natural when you read it. One of the things I liked about this was that at some point, Sinan stops looking at, at um, Marcus as a, a generic American mm -hmm. and starts looking at him as an individual. Right. And this is something that I find really fascinating because we hear how much the the you know everybody hates america and i just don't think that it's necessarily america or americans that they hate it's more america and in, in, right. in, in its current configuration right well when i was in in turkey in november in istanbul people kept saying to me i mean i had six or seven people says and people would come up to me and and when they found out Amer i was american just start talking politics with me which they you know, really didn't do before, um, before when I was living there in, in 99 to 2002. And um, what they said to me on a regular basis was, you know, you don't understand, we like Americans. We don't like your, the American government right now. And then they would say, we want, we want Hillary to win because we want Bill Clinton back in the White House, um, which was a very interesting, very interesting comment to me. You know, Hillary can't do it on her own. They, you just got to get Bill in there so he can do it because they, they have this – they love Bill Clinton. They love the 90s and uh, 90s America. Um, so people did make that distinction on a regular basis to me. Can you tell me about what you're working on now? Um, well, it depends on the day. I started, you know, I did, I've been teaching, and I, I didn't teach this year so because of the book, and, um, and I'm supposed to be working on another book, and I did start another book, and it took, it, it, it was, I said when I was writing this, I would never run, I wouldn't run another book in Turkey for a lot of reasons, but then again, I sat, I'm like, I sat down and facing nine months of time to write, and what to write, and not really having an idea what I want to write, and I, there were a lot of things about Turkey I didn't have a chance to write about a lot of experiences in Istanbul. So I started writing a story that took place in Istanbul, um, so f for focusing around the, the, the art scene that's going on there, and wrote for about six months to get about 150 pages into it, and uh, had about, and it just never felt right. It felt bad the whole time for some reason. And uh, had about three days off, took a three-day weekend somewhere, and I came back to sit back down again, and I just had a nervous breakdown. Just like, I can't do this. I can't write this story. I hate it. I don't want to do this anymore. And, but then I'm like, oh, six months of work, 150 pages. Um, so I drove my wife crazy for a, a, a night and uh, decided the next day that I was going to put it aside and not work on it. 
And then I started working on something else. It doesn't play, take place in Turkey, and I'm feel hesitant to talk about it too much because as soon as I talk about it, it'll sound stupid to me, and I'll stop working on it. Um, but it's not set in Turkey. It actually is set in San Francisco and Indiana, um, and it's something completely different. And I started working on that, and then I had a panic about that and went back to the Turkish thing for a while and started working on that, and then I went back to this other thing that I'm working on, and um, I seem to be going back and forth, and I, but I think I'm going to stick with the, the non-Turkish story for now. We'll look forward to seeing it. We've been speaking with Alan Drew. His new novel is Gardens of Water. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Uh, thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.